0: It's the word of the Lord, amen? Well, I never make jokes about preaching for a long time, so I'll try. I'm one hour into four hours worth of ibuprofen. That means I got three good hours worth of preaching. So I'm just going to go ahead and take up all of them. We're going to read the whole book of Acts together, and then I'll preach verse by verse through the whole thing, okay? Y'all ready? That's where you laugh, right? Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm glad to be with you this morning. Uh, movements movements, like when people are uh, aware of something and therefore they're really united around that something and then they're, they're gaining traction uh, in their calls. They have moments. Those moments are filled with people. Moments have men. And men always need guidance. They need guidance. And that's what you see in the book of Acts. Acts. We just sang some wonderfully perfect songs to really prepare our hearts to even get an overview of the book of Acts because we need God to establish the work of our hands. We cannot, nor have we ever been able to do something on our own. Our most united, some adults of you learned this morning in Sunday school, was when we were at the Tower of Babel. And what we seemed to be accomplishing was something great until we realized we weren't accomplishing anything because we were doing it without God. And so this morning, we're going to see three different connections that really led us into the worldview of God's movement. God's movement in the local church, the first new covenant people of God after Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Uh, This morning, I want us to see the mission, the movement, and the miraculous. We'll see it in the pairs of people that we study, right here in these first five verses. This is called a prologue, where Luke is laying out another introduction to his reader and his readership. And then in verse six next week, we'll actually start the, the narrative, okay? Luke and Acts are historical narratives, so they're actually factual, um, they're historic, and they're narratives, they tell a story. Today, we'll look at Luke and Theophilus, see the mission, Jesus and the apostles, we'll see the movement, and then finally, the Father and the Holy Spirit, which is the miraculous. Now, before we do that, I want to tell you about something awesome I read about this week. I've heard about it, hippies sitting in the front of church services, you know, wanting to be different, in a moment of time called the Jesus Movement. You may have heard of it. The Jesus Movement, if you haven't heard of it, I read recently in a Ray Orland article, uh, it peaked in its influence in 1969 to 1972, and it was an evangelical Christian movement that began on the west coast of the United States in the late 1960s and then on into those early 1970 years. It spread, uh, the movement for Christ uh, that was the Jesus movement, it spread throughout North America, eventually to Europe, and even to Central America before finally it subsided by the 1980s. Now, members of the movement were called Jesus people or Jesus freaks. Their main goal of the movement was, believe it or not, to return the church to the book of Acts. This is why I thought it was a good introduction story for us. But honestly, uh, their hope was to get back to what the Bible taught the church should be, to see the movement of God that was described in these pages. Ray Orland, who wrote the article, he actually experienced it. He was in the middle of it, and he had this to say, quote, The Jesus movement permanently defined my own expectations of gospel ministry. I was there. I saw the power of God change the subject among the, young, the youth of Los Angeles from politics and drugs to Jesus and his power. It ruined me for life. I saw what only God can do, as did many of my contemporaries. And then he says this, Our restless hearts will never stop aching for a new visitation of the Lord upon our land. This may sound radical to modern Christians now, but honestly, it shouldn't. This is the language of those who have, been, uh, who have experienced and been exposed to real revival. When people have seen real life change, the gospel saving, the, the, the church uh, proceeding forth with her mission, the book of Acts catalogs that. And when people see it, they realize, man, I'll never stop aching for this. I want this. The book of Acts catalogs this. It shows us what real, genuine, authentic revival looks like for the first time among God's people after the resurrection of their Savior. So let's look at the mission, the movement, and the miraculous that's discussed in these first five verses this morning. And here's my prayer as we go into it. I hope we go into Acts with expectation. I want that last line of Ray's reflection to be our expectation, Our restless hearts will never stop aching for a new visitation of the Lord upon our land. I hope that's what we want. When you see the book of Acts, you see that's what they had, and the Lord uh, makes it clear that he's not done. So, first point, the mission, Luke and Theophilus. This is all just in verse 1. So, in verse 1, the first book, Luke says, O Theophilus. Now, the first book refers to Luke's gospel. It is believed that Luke wrote these works together. And then they were split up only when the four gospel accounts were wanted to be brought together, which brings John into the middle of it in your, in your Protestant Bible there. It's kind of sad, really. They belong together. You should read them in that way. You should read Luke and Acts. It is rarely doubted among anyone, historical or contemporary scholar, uh, of whether or not Luke wrote this. It's certain that Luke wrote these. He did. And some things about Luke you need to understand. He's an amazing theologian, and he's a historian, Uh, His Greek, they say, is some of the most phenomenal example of modern Greek in that time. He weaves the skill of Hellenistic, that's just a fancy word to say, Greek culture. He weaves it into it uh, a lot like Greek historians in his day did. So he's writing something on par that people would really respect in his gospel and in the book of Acts. Luke's talents are used by God in the mission. This is a big point here uh, about the book of Acts. You know, Luke wrote more than one-fourth of your New Testament. He wrote over a quarter of the New Testament that you hold. So we need to understand him if we're going to understand the book of Acts. And it says that he doesn't just write, he writes to Theophilus. So in the mission of God that lays out in Acts, we we learn right at the bat that uh, Theophilus is someone who's receiving this huge work. Now, in 2,000-plus years, we found nothing that tells us about his identity, truly. Let me give you just a few ideas. Some think that Theophilus was a rich Gentile uh, convert, that's that he had converted to Christianity, who helps support Luke in the way that he... Uh, Luke goes and works and travels and studies and Theophilus kind of like backs that and so he writes to him. Some others think that he could be no one. He could just, you know, his name, Theophilus, if you're looking for a, a name to name your son, it'd be a good one because it means friend or lover of God or one who is loved by God. It can mean both. And so maybe some think that Luke's just writing to Christians generally and saying those are loved by God. Finally, he could be a lost person, a lost Gentile that Luke was witnessing too. And through evangelizing him, produced these works under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I want to do. I choose to step back with you this morning from conjecture and imagine a safer connection to Theophilus. I think we just need to call him for the sake of explaining Acts and the mission here. I think we need to call him a pilgrim. I think we need to call him a sojourner. Someone who has been woken up to the reality that there is more to this life than what he was doing. You see, the truth is, guys, we're all pilgrims. We're all pilgrims in life. Even those who do not believe are on the same general trajectory toward death as those who are saved. Let me explain it. Both face sin, lost and saved people. Both live in the world. Both are made eternal image bearers of God. Both will give account to God in their death. However, only one makes the pilgrimage in hope to a new home. That's the Christian And so we hope for Theophilus to be real and for him to be converted. But nonetheless, he is certainly at a bare minimum like everyone who reads this book. And that's what I'm trying to make with this first point. You see, what happens over and over again in the book of Acts is God's mission is on display continually. And what is his mission? Well, it starts with his son, We all suppress the bad news that we have been born into sin. We live in sin, and apart from the grace of God, we die in sin. We will spend eternity paying that penalty in judgment. We suppress that. And I believe that Theophilus was probably just like you and I. He was tempted to buy distraction. He was tempted to entertain himself. Maybe he wanted to work his way out of deep waters and struggles in life. But it's not what happens. Because what happens is, for every Theophilus, it seems like there's a Luke. So we praise God in the first place for men like Luke. Luke and Theophilus together really show the whole mission of the book of Acts. We learn in Colossians that that Luke is a doctor. In Colossians 4, he's a physician. And though he cares about ships and shipwrecks that we'll see and physical health people getting bit by snakes and he documents all of the stonings and the things that happen which are very much in line with his you know care for the physical body do you know what he really shows clearly he shows the the damage that's been done to a man's soul because of sin over and over again the mission of acts is luke showing that people like theophilus are lost they're broken they need to repent and believe the gospel, and they need to do it over and over again sometimes. Listen to his love and his desperate kind of, you know, the neediness he identifies in Theophilus in his first letter. So this is Luke 1. Inasmuch as many, Theophilus, he's writing to Theophilus, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, Luke says. How, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Do you hear the mission? And even in that, or in our text, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all who, of Jesus, what he's began to do and to teach. I've literally laid it out for you. I, there's more to tell you. Now, we read it and we think, well, that's very reasoned and rational, and it is, because remember, Luke's a physician, he's a historian, but even in the way that he loves history and cares about the body and is very rational, it's clear Luke loves this man. Luke loves all men and wants them to understand the mission of God in this book. He's researched it, he's visited with his eye, he's talked to eyewitnesses, and we're going to see later when the, when the passages begin to say we, he's along the ride with Paul in the book of Acts. And what has he learned? Well, he's learned what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and the ones who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So, the purpose of Acts erupts from this first verse in this one relationship between Luke and Theophilus. The book of Acts is a promised continuation of the story of Jesus, the history of Jesus working through his people to complete the mission. And it's seen in the love that Luke has for Theophilus. Amazingly, Luke's gospel theme was to show that Jesus is the Son of God, and now in his part two, the, uh, uh, excuse me, to show that Jesus is the Son of God, and the effect was, in that first letter, to believe on him as Lord. And now in Acts, the theme is to show him as Lord of the church, and the effect will be for the world to know him as Lord. In other words, same theme turned missional. Turned missional. That is the mission that's seen in Luke and Theophilus' relationship. Secondly, the movement, the movement, Jesus and his apostles. Look at verse two of the prologue there. Luke says, until the day he was taken up. So referring to the ascension here, Luke will pick up the historical narrative um, next week, as I said in verse six, but consider these first verses. Remember, this is dealing with all that Jesus did and said prior to the moment when Jesus physically left the earth. So it says, after he had given commands. So we've got this specific space. Here we meet another character set. And in this space, it's Jesus and the apostles. So Jesus is risen from the grave and before he ascends. And here we are. Jesus chose the 12 apostles. It's not the other way around. And the relationship uh, that they have with Christ is intended to be a model for how the church in Acts follows and obeys Jesus. So the fact that this is a theme is clear in Acts, that Jesus is is, uh, one who has presented himself, he is there, and he has chosen his people to do something, and that's the movement. Two commentators really help with this. Mark Dever shows the message preached by these earliest Christians. So the earliest apostles that you're meeting here in the book of Acts, it was all about Jesus. It was all about Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus commissioned his disciples to do. He told them to go all around the world and be witnesses to his life, death, and resurrection. In this moment, we realize that the movement that is the Jesus movement, the real one here, Uh, Jesus knew he was the focus of God's saving activity in the world. He was. So he tells them, the apostles. R.C. Sproul says the theme of Acts is this, the church's obedience to Christ's commission and commandment to be his witnesses as the ascended king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, end quote. And so Jesus, we see, presents not only the mission to them, but he does so in a way of uh, uh, you know, giving them concrete thanks for the movement. So it says there, he presented himself alive to them. Notice that. After his suffering, notice it says, by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus presented himself risen from the grave to the apostles at a time when his suffering that's mentioned here meant the torture of the cross. They were saddened and broken down, Jesus appears to them. And Luke makes the point that this movement is not flippant. It's 40 days that he explicitly revealed himself to him. Now, this is important to note because if he is writing to Gentiles like Greeks, well, they would have had no problem thinking about, you know, a divine human, like a demigod type human ascending up into heaven where they belong. They wouldn't have thought... Yeah, that's fine. All the Greek gods do that at some point. Come down, cause a mess, go back up. Ascension. So the ascension would not really have been very miraculous. However, Luke shows for 40 days, a man who was dead, attested as being very dead. Go read Luke. It's the most graphic content we have on the cross. It's found in Luke. One who has been dead is now alive. And he stands for 40 days, witnessing And creating plans, plans for a movement. These many proofs, you know. That's it's funny. Luke, if you go read Greek history, there's a Greek word that he uses there for many proofs. It's very common in Greek historical accounts. He's unapologetically aware of the mission that we talked about. He's writing Theophilus, and he's unapologetically aware of the fact that God's movement is happened. It's happened. It's proof. It's provable. It's testable. You can touch this Jesus. We did. These people he interviewed did. Paul echoes it very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to this. It's amazing. Paul writes, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Listen to what Christ did. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared. He appeared to Cephas and then to the 12, Paul writes. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Paul writes, though some have fallen asleep. They've died. Then he appeared to James, Paul says, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me, the true 12th disciple, if you will. Now, liberal theologians try to dismiss the resurrection uh, Gnostic heretics would divorce the spirit and the body of Jesus and claim that they were only seemingly seeing Jesus, but really he was just a spirit. But we know better. And we know that it was him, body and soul. Why? Because of the movement. Because of the, these men. Because of this reliable message that Luke recorded. He wants everyone to understand, no resurrection, no movement. Simple as that. Resurrection, change. A world totally different. There's a timeline in view. Remember, it's this, you know, after death moment. Now, what are those commands that Jesus gave? What are they? Because he rose from the grave, and that's what Luke's trying to say, but he's trying to connect it to the movement. He's saying, look, he rose, and then what he said, we did. (laughs) They did. See it for yourself. Well, what did Jesus say? Let me give you the four accounts of it. Briefly in John 20, 21, he said, peace be with you as the father has sent me, so I'm sending you. The way Luke recorded it and heard it, he heard it as him saying, go and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Mark 16, Mark and Peter heard it as go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And a lengthier one, Matthew, which is so interesting that the tax collector, right, the one who they would say is not a true Jew, he gives the best best one. I love that. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The main command of Christ was followed, and that became the movement. Do you know Acts 1-8 we'll see next week is the fulfillment of all four of those. It says, and you, Jesus says, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, this city, and in all Judea and Samaria and eventually the whole world. So the major theme of Acts explodes again to us between Jesus and the apostles. Christ commands to these men are obeyed in Acts and the result is growth, a movement of God. Something that you can write down that you really need to take with you into your study of Acts, which will be really helpful. Three ways that it's described, the movement, like the growth in Acts. The first way is, in the book of Acts, we go from the nation, Jews, like we go from the nation to the nations, the Gentiles, and you got to watch for that. From the Jews to the Gentiles, that is, from the nation to the nations, it builds on itself, you'll see that. A second way we grow in, in momentum in the movement is we go from Peter to Paul. So we spend the first five books of, the, of, the, of it with half of Peter's time in Jerusalem, and then we see God through Peter working into the Gentiles' lives as well, up until the conversion of Saul turns Paul. And then we take a turn and we go with Paul on three missionary journeys, and then a bunch of chapters before men where he, where he finishes the book. But it's helpful to know that as God showed this movement, he did it from a man to a man. He goes from Peter and he goes to Paul. Um, A third one is location. You'll notice that we're going to start in Jerusalem, but we're going to go from Jerusalem to Rome. But if you'll just get a map and go look, that's a long haul, okay? And it takes a long way to get there. And along the way, we see that God is, not, is, is amazingly doing things. Now, what's he doing? Because that sounds awesome. Study the book of Acts, preach about growth, and then your church will grow, right? I mean, that's what we are all thinking, right? I'm thinking that. Uh, but here's the thing. Is that a good thought? Well, honestly, it really is. Guys, in our day, churches scramble to create movements, In our day, churches use marketing, and they use branding, and they use buildings, and they use programs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And the rule for them is, we're going to win them. So what we win them with, we're excited about. But they fail to remember, what some of you learned this morning, what you win them with, you must keep them with. And what's authentic about the movement in the book of Acts is there's no holds barred honesty continually from the apostles, Jesus and the apostles said he rose from the grave. We will not not declare that. We are going to live for him. It's all about the atonement. We preach Christ crucified, and then we get together and we love others. That's what we do. And it's like, but don't you do something else? Surely, you know, the Greeks are like, don't you need like all these other stories and fancy romance and stuff? And Paul's like, no, I don't need none of that. I don't need an an altar to an unknown God. I worship the one true living God. And you know what God does? He pours out his spirit. He blesses it and he grows it. And what's amazing about the content about this movement, it gets marked most by the way people speak. Expositional preaching is constantly in the book of Acts. We won't even get into chapter two before we have to endure an entire sermon where God said, hey, 3,000 people got saved, real small at the end. It's like, whoa, today's churches are like, yeah, 3,000 people. That's what we need. And God's like, no, no, no. That's what I, that was the result. Let me, the most content, let me break down the word of God for you. Slow, incrementally, patient, endure what is the truth of God's word. We must put aside all silliness when we read about the first revival, the first movement of God after the resurrection. It, marked, it was marked with normal means of grace. Things like preaching, the scriptures preaching Christ spending time in fellowship with other saints and loving them sharing the faith with a stranger and inviting someone into your home that's the whole book start to finish and when it turns into a prison scene like where they actually have to suffer paul just turns his prison cell into a home again and just starts inviting people into it like start to finish they break bread they believe the gospel and god does something that's the movement So the mission, Luke writes to Theophilus, the movement, Jesus commands his apostles. Now our last point today, before I pass out, I'm just kidding, I'm fine. I am thirsty though. (laughs) Oh, the miraculous, the miraculous. Uh, Look at verse four, it says, and while staying with them, he ordered them, Not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, when you talk about the resurrection, when it says staying with them, that could be translated as as sharing food or meals with them. So the 40 days that we have gets even better. It's like Jesus wants to eat with them, which is really cool because that's what we're going to do in the, in, the, in the consummation. Today, we celebrate the Lord's Supper because of that. But he is eating with them. His resurrection body, F.F. Bruce notes, had really no need of material food. It had no need for drink uh, for its sustenance. But there also may be a hint of what is shared here in the same way that Jesus broke the bread in Luke 24 before them in his resurrection, so again, let me real quick before we get into the preaching of this, I encourage you to go read Luke Acts. And I say it that way on purpose, Luke Acts. If you can read the whole thing, it's gonna take you a while, but you can read the whole book of Acts in two and a half hours. That's a slow reader. And I would encourage you, you'll sit and watch a new Avengers movie for two and a half hours. You could probably do this, right? It's easy to read, but two and a half hours, you tag Luke on there, you're you're in the you know five-hour range. But it's important because you know, Luke in verse in chapter 24. It's an awesome story of Jesus walking on the road with these guys, and they don't know who he is, and he's like, you know, talking to them about these things that have happened, and, and they get to a house, and they're eating, and Jesus breaks the bread, and all of a sudden, it, they see, like, it's him, and they, they recognize him, poof, and then he disappears. It's just awesome. Like, it's just so cool, but what's amazing about that is right here where it says, you know, while staying with them, it's kind of picking up on that same idea. It's this idea that in the breaking of bread, the men in Emmaus, they saw him. It was his self-disclosure. Jesus chose to reveal to them by the power of the Spirit. He gave them eyes to see, and they saw him, right? And so here we see, while staying with them, while eating with them, while while taking part in these ways, he orders them. And what does he order them to do? He connects his his he connects his presence right now with His eventual absence and the promise of the Father. So, right here, we get our third set of people. If it was Luke theophilus' mission, and now it's, you know, apostles and Jesus for the movement, then the miraculous comes with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to get this at the onset of studying Acts. Because in just four verses, Luke has shown you the entire Godhead, he did it intentionally. He has shown you God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus, the one speaking. It's the Holy Spirit that's revealing as Jesus is there who he is in Luke 24 and in this moment. And now amazingly, he says, that when it comes to the miraculous, it's going to be the Father. We're including now God the Father. The correct understanding of God being three in one is essential and vital to the Christian faith, and Luke demonstrates it in the book of Acts, right here at the beginning. He says, don't try to study this text and rely too heavily on one member against another. Don't pit the members of the Trinity against one another, which is like the error of all errors all the time in church history when it comes to the Trinity. We want to focus too much on Jesus, or we want to focus too much on God the Father, or we want to focus too much on the Holy Spirit. But we're actually supposed to see Jesus is saying that he is God, and he uh, will give his spirit. And more than that, the promise of the Father. And so I bring this up because the promise of the Father was spoken by Jesus. And notice he did it in comparison to the baptism of John the Baptist. That's what he brings up here. Why the connected, excuse me, why the connectedness here? Is Luke just being thorough? Well, no. No, he's showing the historicity. That's fancy words. The history of this movement of Jesus' followers. Remember what we said at the beginning? Movements have moments. Moments have men and the man of Scripture who came before the God-man was John the Baptist. Jesus is connecting them to something that they had seen. You see, everyone held as a prophet John the Baptist. He was held as a prophet, the last prophet of God among the people. And then he was confirmed as such by Jesus himself in his ministry multiple times. This martyred brother in Christ of ours, John is beheaded for his faith, foretold that the baptism of Jesus would give way after Jesus was baptized the way he was baptized in the holy spirit that in that way we would be baptized so listen in Matthew 3:11 John the Baptist in Matthew 3:11 says I baptize you with water for repentance but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry he will baptize you with the holy spirit and fire so in the last verse of our text this morning, this other major theme of Acts burst with clarity. It's the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit, make no mistake. Uh, We either, however, generally fall into two wrong views often concerning the Holy Spirit. You and I are prone to do this. We either Overhype the Holy Spirit. We attribute everything all the time to being spirit-filled. Uh, we seek signs of things like tongues or emotional worship or divine healing or and it leads us at times to manipulate the spirit. We are commanded to want these things. We should want to see God heal. We should want to be so close to God that it's a heavenly language. We should want to be close to God, but we try to manipulate. And God will judge such a wrong view of the Spirit. He he will. Another camp that we often fall into, on the other hand, is the Holy Spirit can become what Francis Chan wrote a whole book about called The Forgotten God. In reaction to those extremes, we can sometimes believe that the Holy Spirit is not involved at all. We like to think of him as a force or something rather than a person. You can ignore something that's kind of like a force, you can't ignore a person. But hear me, the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of our triune God, and He cannot be ignored. We're commanded to walk by His leading, pray in Him, believe in Him, trust in Him, be comforted by Him, pray through Him and to Him, and the Holy Spirit is actively living inside of us as the church. So what we learn here as Jesus prepares them, and he says that you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Do you realize the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, could have very well said it himself, but he humbles himself, even in this moment of ascension, to directly point them to a tangible reality, John the Baptist, and he quotes directly what John the Baptist said about the Holy Spirit when he could have just said it himself. What the heck is going on here? Why does he do that? Well, here's why. If you want to see the mission of God completed, the movement of God started, and you want it to be miraculous, you better not for a second try to attribute it to anything other than God himself. But in doing that, you must realize that God himself continually chooses to use earthen vessels to accomplish his will. There's not this race after the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts in hopes that somehow God will like rain down lightning and kill all the Pharisees. Instead, the rush to the Holy Spirit that gets affirmed by the Holy Spirit, literally the walls are shaken in Acts 4, we'll see. When they want, the, the church wants to deal with this issue, these hateful Pharisees that are wanting to kill them and eventually will. What do they do? They race to God in normal prayer. They race not to some demand for some existential sign that God evaporates all the Pharisees that are against him in a moment, though he could have, right? They put that stupid one aside and they say instead, we're going to entrust ourselves to the normal habit. I think Jesus is entrusting his amazing, miraculous Holy Spirit power to his plan, his plan revealed in John the Baptist. That's boring, but it's necessary it's necessary that these disciples realize John showed up and said it because God said it through him. That's the power God through him, not him, nor that God could somehow do something massive that you you got to see. It's always massive and miraculous. It always plays out in these normal means. This is a good place to end this sermon. I think it whets our appetite. You know, your Bible says the Acts of the Apostles. That was the early church fathers attempting to tell you what I'm telling you. They're trying to like bring chaos in to realize like, hey, it's really the acts of the Holy Spirit, but he's not just ambiguous. He's working through people, right? That's what they were trying to do. But rightly, it's way too long, but this is what your book should be called. The acts of the Holy Spirit sent by the Father under the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the early days of the apostles and first new covenant people of God after Christ's resurrection. That's what it should be titled, but granted, that doesn't fit well. But what is all that doing? If I read that title to you again, you'll be bored. Just like sometimes when you get up to read your Bible, you're bored. Just like sometimes when you like pray for someone that over and over again you've been praying for and nothing's happening, you'll get frustrated. Or like how time and time again, you tell your kid, don't do that, and they do it. You don't do that, and they do it. Don't do that, and they do it, and you're worn down, and you can't keep giving the same discipline gospel message over and over again, but you do it. Why? Because the miraculous is right around the corner, but the miraculous never divorces itself from the means of grace. That's why we gather. That's why we believe we're not wasting time. That's why sick or healthy, we stand and we preach the gospel. We sing about songs about Jesus. We take the Lord's Supper. We don't believe that anything miraculous is in the juice and the bread, but something miraculous in our hearts happens time and again. And what is that? It's the realization that God's miraculous Holy Spirit is among us. Now, the first way to know the Holy Spirit is to be regenerated. Have you turned to Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life and changed? Until you die or he returns, are you changed? I pray so. And if you have it, that is due to the work of the Holy Spirit. When it comes to the acts, the acts here, it's a mission, a movement, and a miracle, and God's not done. God's not done. The book ends abruptly. It's like a a slam the door on Paul in Rome, and what happened? Luke left it that way on purpose. It's to be written again. God writes. He doesn't write scripture with your life now, but he does write into this story, he writes you. He writes me and you. He's written this time. He hasn't wasted ink. And he writes it in, his, in the gospel. He writes it in the hope of Jesus' blood. And he wants to pin a story through us. And he's doing it. And so when we study this story for however long it takes us to get through it, be encouraged. God's mission is never thwarted. His movement never stops. And his miracles never cease. That will be true. Even when we can't feel it, it'll be true. Right? So let's pray, and then we'll sing of this Jesus that we crucified. We pray with me? Jesus, we turn to you now in prayer and in song. You are the sacred head of the church. You, God, are the one and only and true God, living God. And in you, there is truth. There is truth nowhere else. And so, God, we turn to you now, having wounded that head and having ourselves just confess, God, that we have, we have turned to sin. We love licentiousness, God. We, Lord, as we prepare to confess our sin, Lord, help us to sing this song in, in hope. And Lord, I pray that as we, as we sing and as we confess and as we take your supper together, God, may you use it in a mighty way uh, to remind us, God, of the normal means of grace, that your mission's not done, It's not done in us personally nor in our church. That your movement, God, is happening. You move in our hearts. You can move in the hearts of men and women all over the earth. And finally, God, we want the miraculous, but we want it appropriately. We don't want to be disconnected or disjointed. We want to feel it, know it, and then be able to take it with us. Father, we don't worship the miraculous. We worship you, the miracle maker. So God, help us to do that now, we pray in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.